Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists, the podcast that tells you everything you need to know about working for yourself. I'm Emma Wilkinson, a freelance journalist specialising in health and medicine. And I'm Lily Cantor, a freelance money, health and lifestyle journalist. This is series five of the podcast uh, for which we are collaborating with the Freelance Journalism Assembly. Uh, They are part of the European Journalism Centre and they offer a great set of resources for freelance journalists, including a series of uh, reporting guides. Yes, and all of their resources are free to access, including their upcoming Freelance Journalism Empowerment Conference, which is on the 8th to the 10th of June. So head over to journalismassembly.com to find out more and sign up. Yes, so this series, we will be covering a range of topics that have been the at the top of their agenda and things that are going to be discussed at their conference as well. Um, And that have also been on our list and that we've been really keen to cover. Yeah, but before we get on today's topic, we um, are just going to have a quick catch up. Um, So we're recording this on a Wednesday morning um, and I think it was on Saturday, wasn't it, Emma? We were having a bit of a WhatsApp competition to see who had the busiest week this week. (laughs) We were. We were listing all the jobs that we had to do this week. Um, And I thought I was going to win hands down, but I really didn't. It was a really close call. Um, And this was before we wore ourselves out on Sunday by running a 35 mile ultra. Um, So midweek, Lily, how is that to do list going? Are you on top of all those spinning plates or is it already crashed down around you? Do you know what? Yesterday I was having a panic and I think my brain has been a bit mushy since Sunday. Um, and I was slipping behind. So I got up early this morning. I got up at quarter to six and I just bashed out 90 minutes of work before everyone got up. And do you know what? I think I'm back on track now. So yeah, hopefully it'll stay like that. What about you? Um, So far, so good. I think I sent you a bit of a deranged WhatsApp note yesterday when I was having some meltdown because an interview fell through. I had I have my week planned down to the minute. I have to finish at 3 p.m. on the dot on Friday as we're going away for the weekend. Um, so yeah, I still have to get through this week. But then next week is looking sort of relatively sedate comparatively so you know as much as you try to achieve equilibrium as a freelancer sometimes all those deadlines just pile up at once and there's not that much you can you can do about it yeah I think um our listeners will probably be surprised when we actually say oh yeah this week I'm not doing much just uh going out doing a bit sunbathing going for a walk because that just never happens when you're freelance but anyway let's Crack on. At some point, maybe. <laughs> Let's get started this week's topic, which is reporting on migration. Yeah, so as always, we have two very knowledgeable and experienced guests to help us pick apart this topic. Um, but let's start by spelling out why we wanted to do an episode on this. Yeah, so the first thing to say is how big an issue migration is globally. The UN 2020 World Migration Report points out several reasons for this. Um, They include violence and conflict, political instability and climate change. And these have all contributed to large scale displacement of populations around the globe in recent years, with the estimated number of migrants placed at 272 million. Yeah, so this topic is so vast and complicated and interconnected and, you know, with it comes issues of human rights, development, geopolitics, climate change, labour mobility, international law. Um, And, you know, for that reason, because there's so many kind of parts to it and it's such a big issue, it does attract a lot of media coverage. Uh, But many organisations have raised concerns about... um, accuracy, bias, tone and style when it comes to migration reporting. Yeah, and as you might expect, there's a host of ethical issues to unpick. Um, But there are actually several guides out there for those um, wanting to know more. There's one from the Global Journalism Investigative Network. Um, It's also a topic the Freelance Journalism Assembly have been working on. And also the Ethical Journalism Network have produced guidance on this. And they give five key recommendations on reporting migration. And these include facts, not bias, know the law, show humanity, speak for all and challenge hate yeah so um we're going to bring in our guests to learn about their experience and gain their wisdom around how we um go about reporting migration stories and first we have caitlin chandler 
uh, a journalist uh, based in Berlin covering migration, security and human rights, among other topics. Hi, Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, in 2020, she received an International Women's Media Foundation Fellowship and won a 2019 EU Migration Media Award. She's received several grants for reporting on cross-border issues, so we're really pleased to have her with us today to help us unpick all this. And we also have George Gasawa, a migration researcher and journalist based in Austria. Hi, George. Good morning. Among other things, he has spent two weeks in the Evros region of northern Greece, Chaos and the Samos Islands, um, reporting live on the unfolding events of Turkey ceasing border controls to the EU. He's also reported on overcrowding in refugee camps and the impact on communities of transit migration. So he's a great person to have on board today. So let's get going. We always start an episode with a, a top tip, that key kind of one bit of advice that you would have for anyone reporting on migration. Um, Caitlin, I'll come to you first. What would be uh, your top tip on this? So my advice would be that covering migration is inherently about covering power, who decides whether or not someone can move from one place to another. And while there's often pressure on journalists to find personal stories, I think it's really critical to keep in mind that there's a whole ecosystem around migration, whether that's you know border guards, asylum officials, or politicians, and that's critical to investigate. That's, that's a really interesting point and a really great one to start us off. So George, same question to you then, what would your tip be for anyone reporting on migration? Uh, well, my tip would be if you're uh, going into the field and you're introducing, um, trying to introduce the topic of, of migration into your work and you do interviews, uh, I would say remove your ego um, and remove any preconceptions that you have about the issue. Um, most importantly, I think it's about learning to listen and giving people the time and the interviews time to express their ideas. So even if this takes a couple of hours, just really get into the bottom of the, those ideas because there are there is so much emotion there that it's important to unpick that emotion and give the people time to express themselves. Um, and then it took me a while to figure this one out, but uh, so I started, well, we're going to get onto this later, I think, but... Um, I think it's important if you're going to interview people, start to simplify your questions. Um, what I found a lot at the beginning when I was doing it, and I saw other journalists doing it when I was accompanying them, was uh, they, they went in with a lot more complex questioning to specific officials or legal advisors, or as Caitlin said, the ecosystem, the official ecosystem around it. And um, it, it was always... It was always easier to shoot down those questions than it was to answer the really simple questions, because those are actually the most difficult ones. That's a really good point, actually. Um, and kind, I guess it brings us back to what we often talk about on the podcast, that your job of the journalist is to make anybody be able to understand what, what this is about and what the issues are. And when it's something as complex as this, that, that you know, those simple questions do often, you know, work really well. Um, Caitlin, tell us, you know, we'd like to learn more about you and how you started reporting on migration issues. So tell us... Um, how you sort of got into this and some of the stories that you've worked on. Sure. So in 2015, I was actually living in Geneva, Switzerland, working for a global health organization. And my time there coincided with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people migrating from uh, the Middle East and Africa to Europe. And I became very interested in how the media was covering the so-called refugee crisis. And I ended up quitting my job in global health and becoming a freelance journalist. So one of the first stories I wrote was about the political organizing of refugees and asylum seekers in the EU. I felt this was a story that other journalists had been ignoring because there was so much focus on the journey itself. And then from there, I segued into reporting on um, the story of one Eritrean man, Daniel, who had spent six years trying to reach Europe and passed through eight different countries on his journey to reach asylum. And then from that, I segued into looking at how the EU was outsourcing its migration management strategy abroad. So I ended up going to Sudan and spending one month in Khartoum and Kassala looking at, you know, what was the impact of these policies for people actually trying to move from Eritrea, Ethiopia and Sudan to reach Europe. So that's how I got started. Wow. Have you found sort of as you've as you've done that, um, have you found that you know, whether you're reporting um, in the sort of within Europe or 
further afield at, at those same issues those same themes kind of coming up time and time again absolutely i think over the last few years the you know this policy the eu has had of trying to give money to other countries to prevent people from moving has only increased and the the impact of of that funding and those policies in other countries has been severe whether it's niger libya and more recently of course there's been evidence that the EU's border agency Frontex has been involved in pushing back asylum seekers as they try to cross the Aegean or Mediterranean Sea. So it was something that began, you know, several years ago, but which is only accelerating. And George, how about you? I mean, how did you start um, reporting on migration and kind of what, I guess, what made you want to, to get into that as a sort of area to explore? Well, I've always uh, I've always really been interested in migration. So I'm, um, I, I, there's a bit of a biographical excerpt here. So I'm a bit of a third culture kid. So I grew up all over the world because my parents, uh, my father was moving around a lot with his job. And I incidentally learned this English in Damascus. So I went to school in Damascus in the 80s. Um, and then so we always, I always grew up in the Middle East. Uh, and then a fundamental experience was when I was in the Austrian army in 2002. And we were dispatched to the Austrian-Slovak border. Um, and we were actually there at the time engaged in, uh, you know, prohibiting the the entry of irregular migrants into Austrian territory. I mean, it was a very contentious issue, which, uh, but everybody who was doing national service at the time had to do it. So I really got me asking questions. Why do people want to migrate? Uh, what is behind this irregular migration? And th- there was a lot of things we saw at the border, which was quite quite fascinating about the um, the irregular and uh, illegal side of it, which is the smuggling and the trafficking. Those are two very different things. Um, and so I ended up writing a, a, my bachelor's thesis about the securitization of migration. Um, but then the fundamental real, and then I went away from migration. I, I did a lot of other things. Uh, but then the real fundamental experience was again in 2015, uh, where uh, at, at the time, hundreds of thousands of um, people were crossing into Europe. Uh, and I was one of the co-founders of an organization at the Vienna train station called Train of Hope. So for six months, uh, I was at the front line really organizing the transit from Vienna to to Berlin or to Germany. Um, and here it was it was it was it was a transformative experience um, because, First of all, you saw who was coming over. You were helping. You saw who the volunteers were. Uh, who the volunteers were. You saw who the police were. You saw there was a lot of interaction going on. But uh, something that really stuck out uh, in terms of the reporting on this was, in part, the inaccurate reporting that was happening. So there was one specific experience that that I felt all the time, or that I saw all the time, and that was. Uh, there were a lot of reporters from the ZDF or from the German newspapers, or sometimes we're reading New York Times reporters there. And I went and asked them, you know, his, and I told them, I said, look, if you want to see the real story, you have to come to the train station at 11 in the evening and you have to stay until four in the morning because this is the reason why a hodgepodge volunteer organization that has no experience is allowed to actually operate with the remit of the police, the military and everybody. And it was always this, they just weren't interested in the story. And what was really happening was that a bunch of volunteers like myself and a lot of translators who were from the diaspora were putting hundreds of thousands of people on buses and trains and transporting them to the German border where they were being taken over the green border to Germany, which was an accusation coming from Germany that the Austrians were actually literally pushing people along. And, you know, this, this was an experience for me where I thought, okay, wait, there's something what, why is this being reported? So um, I was invited to a, a conference in Liechtenstein where uh, I, I was, uh, it was from the Liechtenstein Institute on Self-Determination at Princeton University, where I met some of the professors and, you know, I told them the story and, you know, they just said, hey, look, you know, this was in, in February 2016. And we came up with this idea that I should go travel to along the Balkan route to Lesbos. And then later on, I went to to Kilis, which is on the border to, to Syria, to actually understand what were the shared experiences of other volunteers and how the EU-Turkey statement at the time was impacting uh, the volunteer movements. So that, w- that was kind of how it started in 2016. 16. And since then, I've been pretty much on every route. Um, so I've been to Spain, Mali. Um, I've already been to Syria three times. I might be going again on, on Friday to cover the elections. Um, and, you know, it was uh, for me, this, it, was, it was just this, this idea of, you know, what, what is really happening? Why are certain things not being reported? So that's, that, that was the, the ultimate driver behind all this. Yes. I mean, you talk there about kind of stories being missed, being invisible, things kind of not being reported. And we're going to get onto the issues that 
um, freelance journalists need to consider when reporting on migration stories. But um, I wanted to get your opinion, both of you first, on what bad reporting looks like on this topic. So kind of what are the pitfalls and the ways in which journalists sometimes get it wrong? Uh, Caitlin, what would what would be your take on that? I think there are a couple things to watch out for when reporting on migration. One is being aware not to repeat stereotypes or tropes that became sort of common in the migration coverage from 2015 onward. So stories that sort of focus on the idea of a quote unquote good or bad refugee, as though these are, um, you know, sort of reducing people to symbols rather than actual human beings with complex lives and stories. Um, another would be focusing exclusively on a person's trauma. So often migration coverage uh, does look at what may have happened, you know, as someone has moved countries or crossed borders, but it doesn't actually go into the reasons why they had to move, who may have uh, committed abuses against them on that route, what their redress is, or seek to hold people in power accountable uh, for those uh, traumas that may have occurred. And I think we should be really wary of uh, this, you know, sort of trauma porn that also can lead people to um, a simplified, a simplified uh, understanding of, of migration and what it means to move. And then, yeah, the third would just be reporting that doesn't hold people in power or institutions accountable, because at the end of the day, there are very powerful um, institutions and actors who have a responsibility towards people who are migrating. And George, you, you mentioned this previously, obviously you've got really, um, you know, close firsthand experience of this and, and you noticed that there were things that weren't being reported. I mean, do you, do you still kind of get frustrated um, when you see reporting on migration? Are there, are there any other issues that you think are not being covered? Um, yeah, I do actually. Um, but I would agree with a with a lot of what Caitlin said. I think uh, this 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 was a trauma porn. Was that was that what it was? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that, that that's a huge issue. And um, you know, I, I try to avoid that as much as I can. I mean, there are some stories where I say, yeah, okay, you know, this is this is just a really big story that, or it's an interesting aspect that hasn't been reported on. Um, uh, and I can go into that later, but uh, I'd like to just uh, uh, add two more points to, to what Caitlin said from my experience. What I found was, I think um, there is uh, the problem or bad reporting is where unspecific wording is used. Uh, and here, sometimes reporters don't understand what, what impact this can have on communities that are experiencing, the transit communities that are experiencing immigration. So a really good example of this is 2016-17 uh, with uh, the island of Lesbos, where reporters would come and they would just, they would categorize the entire island. And this is the eighth biggest island in the, in the Mediterranean as the island of hell, pretty much. And this had an, a huge impact on tourism in, in the region. So, uh, you know, the flights dropped, charter flights dropped from 18 to two. Uh, from 2016 to 2018, a lot of hotels had to close. A lot of people lost their jobs, and this raised frustration in the in the in the community in Lesbos. So when you saw the riots happening last year against uh, the presence of migrants, you know this this is all something that fed into it because the international media would come and portray this as as the island of hell and the, that it was the island. So. You know, just to give you an example, you know, just to give you an idea of how big the island is, it's Mytilini is in the south of the island, and uh, that's where the that's where the Karatepe camp is, the previous Karatepe camp. It's Maruvia now, uh, and you know, people in Molivos, which is a hundred kilometers further on, would just lose all their clients, and so there was a lot of frustration going there. Uh, and then the other thing that I would also say was, or the other example was that um, there's not a lot of, especially in national newspapers like in Austria. For example, there's not a lot of uh, knowledge of what the current domestic debate is in other countries. So a good example of this was when the Moria fire happened, again on Lesbos, so just to stick to one example. Um, a lot of the, the, the media was, you know, lambasting uh, Chancellor Kurtz and his Minister of the Interior for being heartless and then comparing him, ironically, to Mark Rutte, who, who's the Prime Minister in the, the Netherlands, who decided to take 500 migrants from, from Lesbos. And I thought this was, this was quite interesting because Mark Rutte is definitely a much much harder on migration than quits. Uh, and then I spoke to some journalists in the Netherlands and they said, no, no, that was completely wrong because Mark Rutte, this was the, cynical, the cynicism of Mark Rutte because he basically 
decided to take because uh, the Netherlands has a contingent of migrants to take from a UN re re replacement uh, 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 a UN um, redistribution migrant redistribution program and he basically cut the contingent for 2021 to take these 500 so it was a very cynical deal and then it was this it was this inaccuracy in reporting which which really frustrated me on a policy level Yes, and it comes back to the issue that we um, that was raised earlier about holding power to account as well, uh, kind of accurately in that case. So let's kind of get to the crux of this episode, I suppose, and talk about how we can do it better, how we can tell the stories of migration better. Um, Caitlin, what, what do you think needs to change? Have you got uh, kind of things that you want to see happen around uh, better reporting of migration? I think one thing that needs to change, which is often overlooked, is the historical context around migration. So journalists and media outlets often approach current migration issues as though this is a completely new thing or they label it a new crisis. But the reality is that people have always been moving between countries, across borders, across continents. And sometimes it's really critical to remind readers of that in the context of a migration story. I also think that we need to pay more attention to language. So in basic news reporting, for instance, you will see in the New York Times uh, a headline such as 150 migrants drowned in the Mediterranean. And I think this actually dehumanizes the deaths of people who are crossing borders. So I would like to move towards 150 people drowned uh, in the Mediterranean. And I think that the way deaths in the US or Europe are covered. Um, you know, if a European or an American dies in, a, in an incident is very different from how boat sinking, for instance, are covered. So I think that that's another critical thing that needs to change. And then the third thing is that there's been very little journalism around how people are learning to live with each other in ways that contributes to local communities and societies. So there may be very simplistic stories about, you know, this one person started a soup kitchen and now everyone is benefiting, but there's less large scale stories around how actually cultures and societies are evolving based on migration. And I think that as migration only increases with climate change and continual war and conflict in other countries, we need to be also seeking journalism that shows how it's possible for everyone to live together. Yeah, yeah, we're all sort of nodding away um, at those points. And I just wonder, George, kind of what your advice would be um, sort of on top of that, really, in, in terms of covering migration stories, I guess, from approach that is sort of fair, honest and ethical. Um, I'd like to point out um, or build on what, what Caitlin just said there. I think uh, a lot of that... Um, a lot of the reporting on migration, if, if you're looking at it specifically in the European context, it is irregular migration specifically coming from predominantly Muslim countries. Now, if you uh, look at the statistics, for example, in the European Union, uh, there's a lot of migration which is happening specifically in Spain from Venezuela. So the largest number of asylum seekers in Europe, I think today, is actually from Venezuela and that's in Spain, but that hardly gets any coverage. It's the same if you look at the Ukraine, there's 1.2 million IDPs in the Ukraine and actually labor migration to Poland and the European Union from Ukraine since the crisis in the Ukraine is actually on the rise and it's it's a big issue too so it's it's this propensity of us to to focus specifically on this kind of irregular migration so I think it would be great to see a lot more reporting on say other migration because then we would also see that integration also works with other cultures so you know the integration I know migration and integration they're intertwined so the integration debate in Austria is always very or in Germany as well it's always very specific is, is very specific to one group of people and I think to challenge that you'd have to start looking at other uh, at other migratory groups which are coming to Europe as well at the same time but that's just on on that but um, for journalists I think what would really help this is to challenge your own source bias so um, be more scrutinous about the sources that you are receiving and here specifically it's um, if you're looking at 
uh, for example, if you're looking at certain research institutions or academic institutions, what you find, what I find is that not a lot of people challenge the methodologies or really go into the methodologies of how that information was actually received. So Caitlin, for example, mentioned the uh, the deaths in the Mediterranean, which is a very, really tragic issue. But yet, I don't find a lot of reporting on how do you get to that very specific number. So in 2016 and 2017, I was in Sicily and in um, Pozzalo in Italy covering the, uh, the, the migration uh, to uh, to Sicily. And I started speaking to local organizations and inter international organizations asking specifically how they got to those statistics. And what I found was actually quite, it was quite, quite disconcerting because they, it, because there were so many people arriving, they didn't, they couldn't actually give you a very accurate picture about who it was. So there was a lot of double counting going on, but that information was being transported directly to the press. And the press was then pushing these kind of stories about scrutinizing, okay, is this number actually very accurate? Uh, and I think, uh, you know, my advice to, to freelancers would be take the time, read the methodology, call the researchers, and just really get to the crux of this, because there are some, there, you know, getting that wrong can, can, have, can have implications. So there was, there was actually quite a little anecdote I have, is uh, so the head of the Green Party was on, uh, the head of the Green the party leader, Sigrid Maurer, was uh, on the, uh, and in the Austrian news show, uh, new big the big news show in Austria, which is the Zip Zwei, and she started to challenge that you know the push and pull factors, which are obviously um, quoted a lot in 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 migration reporting, or facts have been disproved. And I, you know, I found this relatively interesting because I do read a lot of the academic literature, which is coming out. And, you know, I challenged her and I, you know, I challenged her press officer because I wrote him, I was like, okay, which, which reports did you use? Because what she, she was referring to the context of the Eastern Aegean, whereas those uh, reports that she was referencing were actually from the central Mediterranean route, which were referencing whether uh, the private health and the private rescue initiatives are actually creating a pull factor from the coast of Libya, which are two very different contexts. So it goes back to holding, you know, policymakers accountable to say that, hey, is the research that you're using right? And what research are you using? I think that's that's probably the, the, the most fundamental piece of advice that I can give any journalist to make it better. Yeah, it's remembering to ask those really detailed questions and make sure you understand kind of every aspect of it. I mean, you've both mentioned their stories not being reported. So that, you know, either that's kind of more positive stories about how communities are living together, or kind of stories of different, um, you know, groups um, that are migrating that, that where those stories aren't really being told. Is there, is there an opportunity here, do you think, for freelance journalists to find and tell stories around migration that others aren't doing. Caitlin, what do you think about that? Absolutely. Uh, I actually think that a lot of the most interesting work on migration the last couple of years has been primarily done by freelancers. I think because of the complexity of the topic and as George said, the necessity of asking really critical questions over a long period of time, a lot of reporters at outlets who come in and out of the beat they're not able to ask some of those questions. So I think that freelancers are doing in-depth investigative work and getting at some of these uncovered stories. And yeah, and what about, what about you, George? Do you, is that something where you think freelancers can have a real kind of role to play? Uh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, freelancers have the, have the ability to, to stick with the, with the story a lot more and be, really take this up as a niche and really investigate this as a niche um, as a niche issue. And there's there's lots and lots and lots of really interesting stories. But it comes back to another issue, which which I kind of noticed there is, especially when it comes to reporting about migration, is there is a lot of self censorship which is going on within the journalist community, which is writing about this. And what I mean here is. Um, <laughs> Sometimes people don't want to report on something, although they see it because they think it might support a far right wing cause. And uh, and I've seen this a couple of times and, you know, it's really difficult to say, well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I always try to encourage people to write about these issues simply because if you're not writing about it, you're supporting the right wing cause anyway, because they're already accusing you of censoring yourself anyway. So there is a self Censorship does go on here. I mean, I can give you, there, there's a really good example here, which, um, which so I was in Lesbos in November, covering a story about an, a Dutch activist group that chartered a 737 to go to Lesbos 
to to rescue um, 150 migrants. Uh, and one of the and I met and they were accused of you know white saviorism by the only Black Lives Matter activist on the on the island. And uh, you know it was uh, you know I, I found this argument really really interesting. So what is white saviorism in the context of the refugee crisis on Lesbos? First off, is a really interesting is a very very interesting topic because it. it it, it, it it's quite a contentious issue but then we started talking about um racism in the camps and it was i was i was, I was amazed to, to hear about uh the 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 racism within the different groups that are that are that are in the camps at the moment so she was talking about um you know arab on black racism that this was a big issue uh that a lot of people you know that there was a lot of security concerns for the black uh, community because there's a lot of african migrants in these camps and I asked her why she didn't write about it. And she said, no, she didn't want to write about it because she thought that this would then perpetuate the stereotype, uh, the negative stereotype, which is already cast upon migrants as, as it was. And I found, you know, I, I, I tried to, you know, I tried to encourage her to write about it because it would just make the, the whole story about migration a lot more realistic. Yeah, yeah, and I think... <sighs> It's so tricky, isn't it, to kind of make that that judgment call and and like you say, be able to, you know, what worry about particularly if you're freelance, kind of what the impact um, of a story could or couldn't be, and and actually, is that something you should be concerned about, or is it about telling the story? Um, and just kind of moving on from that, um, I just really wanted to ask about, I suppose, the kind of the sort of emotional impact that this can have on you if you're reporting on these kind of stories and I, I know we, we've sort of talked about you know looking very much at the bigger picture and the policy and holding uh, governments to account but you know at the center of this that there, there are people um, very often in very desperate situations um, and if you're reporting on that and seeing that firsthand I mean how do you I suppose, how do you separate yourself from that? Or can you separate yourself from that? And does that have a, a an impact on you? Um, you know, I, that, I, I would imagine that could be quite a traumatic experience. So, Caitlin, I just kind of wanted to ask you first, really, about the kind of impact that reporting on this kind of topic can have on you. I think it can definitely have an impact. Um, I did one story in November 2018, where I visited an abandoned penicillin factory on the outskirts of Rome that had basically turned into a camp for asylum seekers who didn't have shelter. And so I was there with an Italian photographer, Maurizio Martirana, and we were walking through just a completely inhospitable place. It was covered with trash, chemicals, asbestos. There were, you know, there was no running water, no electricity, and there were people living everywhere amidst this ruined factory and in the trash. And I think that was one of the most difficult stories that I covered because you could go into the city center of Rome and see tourists spending money and wealthy Italians eating dinner. And then you would travel just to the outskirts and see this contrast. Um, so you definitely come across situations like this, which are just really hard to stomach. But I think having a community of people you can speak to about it, whether they're journalists or other people who also work on these topics, such as doctors, is really important. And at the end of the day, you know that, you know, I know I have a job to do and the best thing I can do is to try to do that fairly and accurately. And I also go home to an apartment at the end of the day so I can handle the, the stress or the exposure to what I've seen. But many of the people that I've spoken to don't have that same luxury, they're going back, you know, to sleep in a shelter or a camp. And so I think there's always that perspective too. Yeah. Yeah. And George, George, how about you? I mean, what is the emo emotional toll of, of reporting on, on this kind of topic? That's, I, you know, I think about this a lot sometimes. Um, I think because, and this might sound a little callous, but like, I think because I did a lot of the work with Train of Hope, you know, over six months, you were seeing this the entire time, you kind of desensitize a lot to, to this kind of work. And, you know, I speak to a lot of people who work in at the UN or at MSF or at various NGOs or in the, in the police, and they kind of confirm that, you know, after a certain amount of time, after a certain amount of 
after you've seen a lot of things consistently over a certain period of time, you do kind of desensitize to that. So I think much more of the, the, I think much more of the traumatic experiences such does come from very specific uh, conversations that you have with, with people who are experiencing this on the one hand. Um, so there was this one uh, also in Rome. So after I came back from the ex Penicilica, uh, which is the factory that uh, Caitlin was talking about, you know, I was at Turpatina station. I was speaking to a young, young guy. He was 16, maybe 14, a uh, guy from South, uh, from South Sudan. And he, he was really talking a lot about, uh, you know, his experience and what he was standing there. And he just literally, he was, he came off the boat and he was only two or three days in Italy and was already in Rome on this parking lot, sleeping, sleeping by a train station. And he was just, you know, explaining why he fled and um, that, like, you know, he didn't have anything. He only had a piece of paper. And I wanted uh, I wanted to give him, oh, that's what it was. I wanted to give him a pen to write down his number. And he said, why do I want a pen? I don't even have a piece of paper. Uh, and then I was just like, well, you know, have you told your mom that you've arrived safely? And he says he doesn't even know the number. So he fled. He didn't, you know, it was just a lot of emotions that came out. And I remember sitting on the bus back to, back to my apartment. And I just started crying my eyes out because it just... Because he kept on repeating, you know, uh, Africa. He kept on talking about how, why he fled Sudan, and that the, you know, that the Sudanese government and that the the Arab population in Sudan just didn't didn't see him as a human. That they thought he was ugly because he was black, and you know, he was he was it was virtually just this this emotion which just came up in this conversation, which I just you know it just got too much for me, you know, and I was just like, wow. Uh, but I mean, I think the the more traumatic experiences is then when you're actually doing much more of the the conflict reporting stuff. Um, so this is where so I was in I was in January. I was covering uh, the impact of sanctions and the Turkish Kurdish uh, tensions up on the the border to Syria and Turkey. So I was I was in with the Syrian government. So I went in with from Aleppo. And you know we were driving in the Syrian government convoy to get to a town called Ain Issa. And this was just after the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, conflict. And you just saw these images of the drones and all this. And, you know, we were driving there and you just noticed that the tension within the Syrian military and within the Kurdish escorts was just so high. And then, you know, you just thought, you know, you're on a screen right now on a drone image somewhere. And then, you know, you ask yourself as a freelancer, look, you know, you come here. You, you didn't, you're not on assignment. You're going to have to pitch the story afterwards. And you really start to feel responsible for everybody else because these guys wouldn't be there on this road on this highway on in the drone sites of a turkish drone if you weren't there and then that you know that that for me is the much more traumatic experience because then you realize that you're putting other lives at risk and then it took me that was that that took me a while to get over that so i mean i, I was really shaken up and stirred up after that and then there were some other uh and there were some other strange experiences on that trip as well which which really shook me up so it took me a while to get get over that and you know i think that's that's the more traumatic part of it for me i mean other people have different thresholds yeah i mean one of the things that we wanted to ask you both about actually was um safety so you mentioned reporting in regions where there's a lot of conflict um what kind of factors do freelancers need to consider when reporting on stories um, in terms of safety of themselves and those they're reporting on? Um, I mean, George, I'll ask you this first. Um, so I think it really depends on which context you're in. So if you're in, in a conflict zone or going somewhere, I think the most important precaution you can do is first of all, tell the foreign minister, your own foreign ministry that you're going somewhere because it's really important for them to know and have a contact person in there to give to, that you can give an update to if you're going to do anything, you know, if you're going to go beyond the line. Um, the other thing is don't take unnecessary risks. You know, it's, you're not, most of us aren't from, aren't at CNN, we're, you know, we're not, we don't have a big camera team with us. We don't have the big insurance policies, you know, the kidnapping insurance is upwards of six to 7,000 euros and you don't probably don't have that. Uh, and then be aware that if you are in certain contexts that you are worth a lot of money. Uh, so if you get kidnapped, that you're worth a lot of ransom. So just that's why I'm saying don't take unnecessary risks. So when I was in, in Syria, I was again in Syria last year. Uh, and, you know, the... It, it, it was interesting because you know the 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 Syrian Ministry of Inform the Syrian Ministry of Information was very lenient on me moving around. So you know I was thinking of maybe going to Yarmouk district, and then you know my government advisor was saying, look, don't go in there because there's still a lot of uh, there's still a lot of um, there's still a lot of uh, 
inhospitable elements in that area. And the thing is, if you get kidnapped in there, no one's going to come in and save you. So it's like, you know, try to reduce this, but you know, that's where the story is, right? So then you have to balance up, is it, are you going to go to get the story? But then do you want to be, you know, is it worth it? So I, I always say, don't take unnecessary risks. Yeah, um, you've got to weigh up those considerations. I mean, Caitlin, have you got any other advice on that in terms of safety um, of yourself, but also you don't want to put others in danger, like George says, because of your presence? Yeah, I think if you're traveling to areas that are unsafe, it's essential that as a freelancer, you take a hostile environment training or safety course. So there are a lot of different organizations that have these now and that also support freelancers. I did one through the DART Center. It was called How to Report from a Crisis Zone. And they walk you through how you can do a risk assessment before you leave to try to figure out what risks you'll actually face on the ground. They walk you through digital security to make sure that you're protecting any data, information, sources. Um, I think it's really important that the people you're working with are protected. So you need to have a plan in place for how you're either going to conceal their identity or respond if they're harassed or threatened. For instance, if you're hiring someone to work with you in a country, they're likely going to be more at risk than you are. And you need to be prepared for how you're going to deal with if they're arrested or threatened especially after you leave the country. So it's really critical that you don't go into a conflict zone and then leave and put the people you worked with at risk. In addition to doing the hostile environment training or safety courses, I think it's also ethically important to think about what you're going to do if you're interviewing someone who's experienced extreme trauma and they need access to resources. So I was doing one interview um, in Khartoum with someone who had fled Eritrea. She was 17 years old and she was in need of medical attention. Um, and at the time of the interview, I knew of several NGOs that I could refer her to. But in fact, the, the clinic that I referred her to for services, which was at the time run by the International Organization on Migration, they actually wouldn't provide her with medical services because she didn't have the right documents. So I think as a journalist, you need to be prepared that if you are putting someone in touch with services, you may need to stay engaged to make sure they can access the right service. Yeah, and I think um, Rory Peck is another organization um, that does quite a lot of um, safety training as well. Um, and we'll, we'll put all of um, the things that we've mentioned um, in our show notes. And um, one thing I wanted to ask, um, again, We've sort of touched on this, but as freelancers, you obviously are, um, you know, you, you have to secure a commission. Um, George, you've mentioned kind of you, you've gone into places and you haven't necessarily um, kind of sold the story yet or, or, or found the story. I just wondered what that process is. I mean, are you um, sort of contacting publications beforehand and, and um, sort of pitching ideas of what you think the stories might be or is it a case of going to places and and, and finding the stories um and also how difficult is it to tell the stories that you feel need to be told you know if, if news organizations have their own kind of agenda um how does that all kind of work <laughs> that's a good question um yeah i mean so it really depends on on the kind of story so it's a bit of a mix and match so the the last serious story was i was the actually up until now i was still i was the only journalist allowed into syria for nine months so there was a bit of an exclusivity on on that story so but the thing is you know you don't want to approach i mean if you've done any work you know caitlin can probably tell you this like if you go to sudan you don't know what the end product is going to be right so you don't want to go and pitch editors of pretty good um, publications or you don't want to use that contact because, you know, it's a joker card you have and you, you, you know, it kind of gets renewed every time you publish for them and you don't want to go there and tell them, okay, I'm going to do a story on, I don't know, uh, uh, yeah, on fighting in Idlib. And then, you know, suddenly your security, uh, your security is revoked and you have to stay in Damascus. So, and then you come back and the editor's going to be like, Hey, look, we had this whole thing planned. What, what are you going to do? So in that case is you're going to invest a lot of money and that is the risk that you're taking. So you go and then you pitch them afterwards. So luckily I found, I, I wrote two stories about this, about, you know, the impact of coronavirus, uh, and sanctions on Syria. Uh, and then other times, it's, um, it really depends on the story, you know, it's uh, so I, 
um yeah i do so to, i know I'm, I'm moving out away from the question but uh, it is it is a question of pitching it so this next story is where I might be going to Syria again to cover the elections is, you know what the story is. It's the election. So it's a lot easier to go ahead in advance and say, this is what I'm planning to cover because then you can't actually cover it. But getting back to the, to the agenda is, um, yeah, that is a problem because it goes back to that self-censorship issue. It's like, do you want to write a story which is quite critical? For example, let's go back to Lesbos where you're talking about drugs, violence, sex, rape, uh, all of this in the camps, which is happening on a daily basis and which is putting a very negative image on the people living in that camp. Um, you might say these are the structural issues that are there, but then there's also, you know, you want to go a little further and you say, but is it also a cultural issue or something like this? You know, how do you deal with this? Uh, and then you... You just know if you're going to write that, you some publications just won't publish it, or and many of them won't actually. So there there is an issue of that. So you, that's why it's better to have a blog, I guess, which because <laughs> then you can. But uh, yeah, but I, I you know it, it's it's a bit of a mix and match. But luckily, I've been um, you know I've, uh, since I started my my journalism this freelance career as it were I've, I've always been pretty lucky with editors so i used to uh, i used to have an exclusivity contract with an austrian news agency called addendum which unfortunately closed in june uh and you know the editor there he was just always really open to hearing new stories new ideas um anything that would just move away from you know from the kind of stories that everyone else was bringing so that that was very lucky for me and then yeah, after I that mean, finding finding that editor that is kind of building that relationship with mm. they trust you and know that you know you're going to do a good job and 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 also like you know i have to say the other editors that that i've now had experience with is you know i think you know they 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 hardly ever change anything i write i mean what they'll do is they'll they'll use a couple of they might change a change the formulation of a sentence just to cut down on on length but you know it, i i found that editors usually never never really cut in on on my work which, yeah, which I know I mean, is quite rare. <laughs> it is quite rare. I mean, maybe that's something to do with the fact that you are there. Like they can't, you know, you are have such an expertise just from being there and reporting kind of from the ground that, you know, that they just kind of trust you and leave you to do that. I mean, Caitlin, one thing that I wanted to ask is, is it ever possible, should you even attempt really to cover any migration stories from a distance? Is this kind of an area of reporting where you, the only way to travel is to, you know, is to travel and speak to those um, in those um, regions? I think there are many stories that can be covered in the country where you currently live. So for instance, um, during the past year where we've had this global pandemic and it's been difficult to travel, I've been focusing on doing investigations inside the EU, such as looking at new forms of border control that are being invested in and supported by European public money. So looking at biometric technology, which will change the way people are able to migrate. And I think it was actually, in a way, an interesting exercise to be not traveling for a year and to look, you know, how can I cover this from a different perspective? But at the same time, as I was mentioning earlier, because many wealthy countries have sort of outsourced migration management to other countries, such as in the Sahel, it is very important that journalists do find ways to go to the ground and actually report in person and from those most affected what is happening. So I think it's really a combination. There are things that can be done in the country where you are, and there are still many things to investigate, but going to, uh, going to other places is still important. Otherwise, we don't know what's actually happening and we don't have information that's accurate. Um, from a logistical point of view, as a, as a freelancer, how does that get funded? So are you paying yourself like to get there and to stay there or are you getting grants or is a news outlet covering your expense if, if they commission you? How does that work, Caitlin? Yeah, I think it really varies. So when you're starting out as a freelancer, it would be very difficult usually to get a publication to cover your travel expenses. I've always been very lucky to work with um, grants and funds that have been very flexible for freelancers. So I was able to travel to Sudan for the story I did with the International Reporting Project Fellowship. And then um, the investigation that I just did over the past year uh, was funded by the Investigative Journalism for Europe Fund. So that's a cross-border fund for investigative journalists in Europe. 
the International Women's Media Foundation has also covered an investigation I'm currently working on. And investigative journalists know that you know, any proper investigation takes at least six months, if not longer. So there's really, there's really no way to adequately cover your entire time. But if you can get a grant that covers your time researching the story, I think that's really important. We've had so much practical, amazing um, advice from both of you so far. And um, we are, I mean, I could talk about this all day, but we are gonna have to wrap up soon. I just, we've talked a lot about facts being um, important um, and the kind of the sources of your information. Um, I just wanted to ask um, the last question to both of you is kind of, are there any sources of information data that you would point to as being um, particularly helpful when reporting on migration? George, have you got any uh, kind of places that you would point freelance journalists to as being uh, good? Sure. Uh, so I think probably some of the, one of the most underrated piece uh, uh, organization, well, not organizations, it's a sub-organization of the IOM, which is the International Organization of Migration, is uh, the DTM, uh, Displacement Tracking Matrix. Um, and that's got fantastic resources. You know, they, they really, because that, it has the most, it has some very accurate data. It's, it's really, really good to use. Uh, and I use it all the time. So if you're, if you're looking for good, good sources of information, so really on the ground, it's very actual, use that. It's based in the Southeast Europe offices based in Vienna, but they have offices all over the world. Um, and then the other one that uh, I would always stress freelancers to do because you can is uh try to start diversifying in your sources and who you're using and who you're referencing. And by this, I mean, what I've noticed a lot in the migration reporting over the last five years is we tend to have a very um, Eurocentric view on experts. You know, so we're always looking at experts from Oxford. And, you know, this goes back to challenging your source bias that I was talking about earlier, is there are fantastic universities and uh, migration departments at universities outside of Europe. Just to mention one, which is the Mirakaka Koch University in Istanbul. Very, very good, very knowledgeable resources, excellent academics who work there. Um, another one is, is just looking at the, uh, for example, if you're going to do reporting on refugee movements between Syria and Lebanon is lo start looking at Lebanese uh, academics there at some very good uh, some very good academics there and also reporters that uh, that work from the region um, you know we do, I don't think we as journalists we I mean I try to do it I don't think um, I think we I'd love to see more of it happening is that we're not reaching out we're not interconnecting to, to other journalists across 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 other regions and, and working with them and getting their expertise on it. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're the ones that are going to know, aren't they? Mm. Caitlin, um, have you got any resources that you would point to as being useful for this? Yeah, well, I think I would agree that it's really important to try to have a wide range of sources and to, you know, gather data from, from many different sources. But one group that I've often used for their health data is MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, um, if they're in a particular country in which I'm looking at. I also think that local academics um, who have been studying the, the issue for a while are a really great source. And if you're looking for historical context or um, you know, a political analysis, that can often be really helpful. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. We're gonna move on to our listener dilemma of the week. So this is a section of the podcast where we put um, our listeners' questions to our guests and try to fix a problem they've been having or give our thoughts on something. Yes, yeah, so this week the dilemma is from Eternity via our Facebook group who asks, is it normal for a publication to write in the contract that you are liable for indemnity? Do freelancers need to take insurance? Please help, this is my first commission. So, um, Lily... I think you did actually respond to her in your Facebook group and it did start a bit of a discussion. So I wanted to include it on the episode because it's something that comes up all the time. So I'm going to let you go first on this one. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the first thing um, to explain is what it actually means um, that you're liable for indemnity. Um, and I suppose in a nutshell, it, it basically means um, if there is an issue with the story that somebody... Um, uh, thinks that they've been uh, defamed, that basically you're liable for that. You're, you're the person that's going to get sued, basically, not the publication. Um, so the, the publication is removing themselves um, from that. 
Um, yeah, and so my advice on this really was that's definitely something that you need to have a discussion about. Um, and I've had this in contracts where it's come up and I've just asked them to remove it. Um, because, you know, you don't know what is going to happen to your words once you submit them. Um, and you cannot be held liable for something that happens in the edit. That's completely unreasonable. Um, I think sometimes there there is a compromise where I've had contracts where it's said um, I've only been liable for the copy up to the point of submission. And then anything that happens from then onwards, um, the organisation is liable for. Um, so yeah, I would I would always say that you know really look at contracts carefully and definitely look out for indemnity clauses um, and challenge them because you know as freelancers um, you you just cannot afford to have a lawsuit and I I'm sure some others may um, mention insurance but it's getting increasingly difficult to get insurance as well. What about yeah, you, Emma? So I, yeah, I mean I've never signed a contract that has that clause in for journalism um and I wouldn't and I don't have insurance but like as Lily says it, it we actually because we had to look into in some insurance for some teaching that we were doing and as soon as I said the word journalist even though that's not why I was asking for insurance so many companies just said no we don't insure journalists it's you know very hard to find this kind of insurance unless you're willing to pay you know a huge, a huge amount of money that you know there are some you can hunt around there are some companies that do it but I guess the question you need to ask yourself is is it reasonable what they're asking me here and you might be able to come to that compromise where you you feel happy in the work that you've done up to the point that you've handed it in so you will take responsibility for that and you don't even feel you need insurance for that because you know you've done a good job and you haven't defamed anyone but you're not taking responsibility for the final publication because obviously edits are brought in and you don't necessarily even see you know the final version before it goes um to press caitlin have you had any experience with um with this in contracts well what i think i can add to the discussion is that i recently worked on a story for the columbia journalism review about a media investigation in germany into an hiv doctor who was accused of sexually assaulting his patients. And the doctor had a very high profile lawyer in Berlin who had successfully sued almost every journalist who had written about this case. And as a result, the first investigation into the story, which was by Buzzfeed and Vice Germany was offline uh, while the media companies appealed that decision by, by the lower court in Germany. And so I was brought on to cover this and write about what was the reporting environment in Germany around reporting on criminal investigations and why was a Me Too case being silenced. And in that case, because I felt there was a very high chance I would be sued as well, I negotiated for the publication to cover my legal fees in case of any issue. And that was something they were also really supportive of once they realized you know, the possible adverse consequences. So I think you can also negotiate explicitly for uh, your legal fees to be covered in a contract if you think there's a high risk that even if your reporting is fair and accurate you might still be sued for defamation yeah i mean that's really interesting isn't it and it comes back to the idea that you read every contract and you think about the circumstances of every story that you're reporting on because you know you had a specific reason to ask for them to in include that there and um, you know i think increasingly journalists say that you know you, they just get sent standard contracts with this kind of liability indemnity stuff in it and you know <laughs> you just need to push back because you know you, you they they're just sending out kind of a, a standard form that they do to everybody and you need to just make, be aware being on top of it and reading it and and you know knowing when it's appropriate and not appropriate uh george what would be your advice on this one um, yeah, I've never actually had a problem with a contract like that. So, um, but, 
But my general advice is uh, just get the insurance <laughs> if uh, if you have because you know you're, it's something that you're going to use it anyway. I mean, you're not going to use it just for one publication. Just get it. It's a yearly fee. It takes a lot off. Besides, anyway, it's a tax deductible, and if you're if you're kind of sneaky, you can put it into the cost anyway. So you see, like it's just. Um, I, I just I just uh, I just had some bad experiences renting cars, and from that I've always learned to take the insurance. Doesn't matter what it meant. <laughs> you don't want to pay. You don't want. You don't want to be there holding the bill. No. Um, but just make sure you do read the small print. Um, and there are a couple. So I know Hiscox says, but I'm not doing a. I don't want to. I don't want to like do an advertisement for for Hiscox, but I know they have one. And in Austria, there's a couple of um, there's a couple of insurance companies that specifically have this. Yeah, his clocks comes up quite a few times. Um, and I, I'm not sure what their current policy is on this because I think they may have changed, but it's definitely worth trying them, trying trying others, um, having, a, having a good look around. Okay, brilliant. It's time to bring this episode to a close, but I want to thank Caitlin and George so much. That, that was really a fascinating discussion there and it was really great to hear your experience on this topic. I've definitely learned a lot. Yes, me too. That was um, some really incredibly um, fascinating insight from both of you. If you want to know more about us, including how to sign up to our newsletter, then head to freelancingforjournalists.com. Also, come along and follow us on Twitter, where we're at Freelancing4. You can also follow us individually. I'm at Lily Cantor. And I'm at Emma Journo. And you can also head over and join our Freelancing for Journalists Facebook community. And you can also hunt us out on Instagram. Yeah, if you feel like giving us a thumbs up or review on the podcast, we'd love to hear um, your feedback and it helps us to spread the word as well. And we want to say a thank you to our producer for this series, who is Anthony Coates. So thank you to him for sorting out any edits. And also thank you to our research assistant, Helen Quinn, and our intern, Freddie Hall. Yeah, and we will be back uh, with another episode next week. So goodbye for now. Bye.